Good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. We are starting tonight on Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. Again, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. And the verse reads, He who carries rechil, which is tail-bearing, where someone tells you something private and then you tell it over to somebody else, he who carries Rahil, he will reveal secrets. And a person whose spirit is trustworthy, he will cover the thing. So we could say it's he who uh, engages in tail-bearing, he will reveal secrets. And a person whose spirit is trustworthy, he will cover the thing. And... John, I know in, uh, if you haven't been with us, the, the first step we take in all of these Proverbs is to ask ourselves, what are the questions that the verse is raising that we need to answer in order to understand it? What isn't immediately clear to us when we read this verse? He who carries tail-bearing, he will reveal secrets, and a person whose spirit is trustworthy, he will cover the thing. So what kinds of questions might that verse raise to us that we would want to explore? Okay, Naomi, thank you. What's the secret he will reveal about, and why would he reveal it? Okay, good. It's a good start. Any other questions? So I want to suggest a couple others. When it says, a person whose spirit is trustworthy, he will cover the thing. What is the thing? And what does it mean to cover the thing? And as Naomi has alluded, why will a tailbearer reveal secrets? In fact, what is a tailbearer and how would we define that? So the Rabbeinu Yonah says that if you see a person who is a Rechil and he instigates uh, in things of degradation and anger, in other words, he, he tells over things that start uh, that sort of thing, you should know that he will reveal a secret and don't trust him with your secrets. That is, don't reveal your secrets to him. And don't trust him because since he reveals things that shouldn't be revealed and he does not guard his spirit from Rechilus, that is, he allows his natural tendency toward Rechilus to come out, then he will not guard himself from keeping secrets. Okay, so that's the Rabbeinu Yonah. All right. And let me pause uh, and... and uh, pick up on a couple of your comments. So, um, when it says a spirit, a person whose spirit is trustworthy, uh, and you've asked the, the question, Naomi, what's the spirit mean? Okay, good. Pamela, you've raised the question about gossip. Yes, although I would suggest that this verse seems to be talking more about secrets than about just general gossip, although it sounds like uh, the Rahil will, you know, tell over uh, things in a gossipy sort of way. Uh, but it seems to be getting at this issue of someone who uh, is going to reveal something that's uh, secret. And Naomi, yes, you mentioned warmongering. Uh, good. So, the Rabbeinu Yonah uh, says that that's, that's what he said about the first part. On the second part of the verse, Rabbeinu Yonah says that he who has a trustworthy spirit, he will cover the thing. And he gives a reason for this. Um, it, because keeping a secret is not only to, to the trustworthy spirit or, or a person who has a spirit of trust. And he who is uh, trustworthy in spirit, he will cover the thing. Meaning anything that is not fitting to be revealed, he won't tell over, even though the person that said it doesn't cover it up. In other words, the trustworthiness of that spirit 
goes beyond just what the person told me to do, he won't even reveal something that he doesn't think is appropriate to be, to be revealed, even if the person who said it uh, doesn't cover it. So, if we, uh, if we look at the Rabbeinu Yonah, there seem to be three different types of people uh, from his definition. There's, first of all, a person who tells over everything he hears from anybody. Then there's a person who, if you tell him to keep a secret, he will keep the secret even though he is not a person of trustworthy spirit. And then you have the person who is a trustworthy spirit, and he won't reveal anything that he doesn't think should be revealed, even though the person himself will not keep it secret. So he makes, the person of trustworthy spirit, makes his decision not on the basis of the person, but on the basis of the subject. Is this material that should be revealed? Okay? And Naomi, you mentioned Lashon Hara. Yes, very good point. Very good point. So, here's another question then. It seems like the first part of the verse is repetitive. I mean, it says, he who carries tail-bearing will reveal secrets. Well, of course. I mean, that seems like it's repeating exactly the same thing. And King Solomon wouldn't need to tell us that if it were as straightforward as that. He who is a tail-bearer will reveal secrets. Well, of course. What, what would I have expected? So, what is it that the verse could be telling us here? And according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, it's like this. If you see somebody who is a tail-bearer, then even if he tells you, I'll keep a secret, he won't be able to keep that secret. Even if he has the intention not to tell it, he won't be able to stop himself. And he'll go ahead and tell the secret out. Because that's his nature and he's unable to help himself. He can't stop himself. It's like a compulsion. Okay? Rachilus is a person who, when he hears anything about anyone else, he carries it. It's not just secrets. It's anything that instigates people by telling them over things. So, what this is telling us is that even if we have such a person as a friend, we have to recognize that he has this characteristic. And we need to be careful not to tell him things that we wouldn't want revealed. In other words, this is like just a person who has a mouth like a sieve. You know, if you tell something, they're going to they're gonna blurt it out. They're going to tell it over to somebody. Even if they have the intention not to, they will go ahead and do that. Now, we could say, well, isn't that pretty obvious? Actually, it's not obvious to everyone because some people don't think about it this way. Um, and secondly, if you want to have someone to talk things over with, you might blind yourself to the situation and put yourself in jeopardy by sharing confidential or secret information with this person that they'll then turn around and reveal. So what this verse, at least in part, is doing is helping to guard you, helping you to guard against your own emotions, where, gee, I really want to talk to somebody about this thing, but if I know this is a person that cannot keep a secret, that spreads stuff around, it is not a good idea for me to share with them, even though they might be a good friend and I really want to talk to them and so forth, because they will turn around and they will not be able to keep that information a secret. Sometimes the book of Proverbs tells us something that we wouldn't know on our own. And the book will sometimes tell us things that are opposite our emotions. And this one could be either. It could be a case where King Solomon is telling people who are unaware of this that they should be careful. And it's also telling us something that might be opposite our emotions. Uh, again, we might want to share confidential information with a friend, but we've got to be very wary 
and careful because he may be the type of friend who just can't be trusted uh, in that regard. It's interesting, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz shared with me once the idea that, you know, I've, uh, that a, very, a, a safe way to operate, or a, a fairly safe way to operate, is to share information with other people only on a need-to-know basis. In other words, we hear something about what's going on with someone, and there's this sometimes natural tendency for us to want to run out and share that information with other people. But in fact, there may be consequences of doing so, and it is best to keep silent, hold information within, and only share information on a need-to-know basis. That also gets you uh, almost automatically uh, out of the Leshem Hara trap, the gossip trap. Uh, because if I simply don't share information about other people unless there's an absolute need for them to know it, then that avoids me slipping into that trap uh, of, uh, of gossip. The information that the Rashilas, the talebearer, tells is anything that incites quarrels, instigates anger, that kind of thing. So he'll tell over whatever he has. Now, we identified that the Rabbeinu Yonah was dealing, seemed to be dealing with three types of people. And we could ask, well, why does he bring in three? Because there's re there are really only two talked about in the verse. Um, and, and what's the difference between these three different types of people? So the first guy tells over anything that incites arguments. The second won't tell secrets. The third decides what to tell and what not to tell, and he may decide not to tell things that even the teller will tell. So the first guy has this impulse. It's a natural impulse that most of us have, um, and sometimes it's a desire to incite an argument, sometimes it may be just a desire to be the first one to tell the news, to tell a secret. There are different desires that motivate uh, the first type of person, but the result is that it incites fights and discord and disharmony. The second person, this is the one that if you tell him a secret, he'll keep the secret, even though he's not necessarily a person of trustworthy spirit. That person is a halakhic person. So he goes according to the categories of a halakha as to what he can say versus what he can't. Okay? There are certain people who don't gossip based on their conscience. And we've covered before, I think, in these classes, that the conscience isn't the way you should make decisions. Now, halacha, the law, makes sense. So this person uses the law, the halacha, as a way to convince himself that he shouldn't tell secrets when it's against halacha. Okay? He's still got the desire... But he uses the halakha as the way to prevent himself from erring in this way. All right? The third guy has completely undone his desire for speaking uh, secrets altogether. So where he does speak, he's clearly defined in his own mind what should be kept a secret and what shouldn't be kept a secret. And he keeps secrets based on justice and what's good for the people involved. So it doesn't matter whether the guy that told him the secret keeps it a secret or not. This guy is going to make his decision on the basis of an analysis of the situation of what is in the best interest of the various parties involved, what's going to be good for them, what's going to be the right thing to do based on justice. Okay? So... There are certain types of personalities uh, that know how to keep secrets, and that do keep secrets, and you can trust those people. Um, Rabbi Moskowitz doesn't think that's the type of person the Rabbeinu Yonah is talking about here. And the reason he thinks that is because um, we don't generally acknowledge a person who does something without knowledge. Uh, you need knowledge to know how far to go and not carry something to an extreme. You have to be able to control your emotions. And the only way we know of to, uh, as to how to do that is where the mind clearly defines the idea. So the fact that a person has a particular type of personality that just happens to keep secrets, uh, and, and you can trust them because of that, 
That's not, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, what the Rabbinion is talking about here. Because that person would be operating not on the basis of knowledge, not on the basis of justice, not on the basis of analyzing the situation, just on the basis that their personality happens to be that way. Uh, and that's not uh, apparently what the Rabbeinu Yonah uh, is getting at. So, as an example, uh, there are some people who couldn't speak negatively about anyone, even an evil person. They just, they just can't. There's something in their personality that stops them from doing that. Now, the Torah holds that you should talk about an evil person, that you're obligated to speak about him and let other people know about him and that he's evil so that they aren't harmed by him. Now, if your emotions are telling you, well, I can't do that, then the emotions have gone too far because they're preventing you from doing something that you, in fact, should do. That's why you have to be able to think through the situation clearly and know when something is appropriate and when it's not. So, let's now talk about the subject of the verse. Uh, and Rabbi Mosque has suggested the subject of the verse is how we relate to tailbearing. Uh, and there are three ways you can relate to it, to Rechelis. Uh, Number one, you speak it. Number two, you don't do it, either because of halakha or because of your conscience, or you decide what should be spoken about and what shouldn't be spoken about based on the actual subject. And the reason that the middle person is not specifically mentioned in the verse is because he's not perfected. Mishlei, Book of Proverbs, deals with perfecting ourselves. And the number two person in this threesome, the one in the middle, is not a perfected person. The verse just mentions the two opposites, the one who tail bears, and then the person whose spirit is trustworthy, who covers the thing. Okay, But the Rabbana Yonah implies that there's this third type, and that's how we identified uh, this third person in the middle. So, the first one, which is the first half of the verse, shows the evil, and the second half of the verse shows the perfected person. The one in the middle is one who acts appropriately out of halacha or his conscience, and that isn't a perfected person, but uh, they're at least operating correctly. Okay, let me stop. Any questions about this verse? And Terry and Lori, welcome. Okay, if no questions, we'll move on. We are up to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14. Very interesting, uh, interesting proverb. It reads like this. Without strategies, a nation will fall but with many counselors, there is safety or victory. Proverbs 11, verse 14, Without strategies, a nation will fall, but with many counselors, there is safety or victory. So, what are the questions? What questions would we ask about this verse to try to understand what it's saying and what King Solomon's trying to get across to us. Without strategies, a nation will fall, but with many counselors, there is safety. What do you think? Okay, good, Naomi. What's What are the strategies a nation should have? Because it says without strategies, so gee, we'd have to define what the strategies are and on which wrong strategy will the nation fall. Okay, good. Yeah, Pat agreed. What kind of strategies and what kind of counselors? Very good. Okay. 
And I'm going to add one more to that, uh, and that is, why does many counselors ensure safety? It says, with many counselors, not just one. So, uh, and how a nation can get salvation and how. Okay, good. How can a nation survive? So, let's take the first half. Without strategies, a nation will fall. Now, if we just take the plain meaning of the verse, what this seems to say is, if a nation doesn't have strategies, the nation itself will collapse. So, what kind of strategies do you think a nation would need in order to prevent itself from falling? I mean, imagine yourself to be a little country surrounded by a whole bunch of bigger countries. What would you have to have in order to be able to survive? Pamela, very good. A security strategy. How am I going to protect this country? Because presumably there will be other countries that will want to come along and invade it, take it over, rob it of its resources, take the people captive, um, many, many things like that. So I'm going to have to have some kind of a security strategy for how I'm going to protect the, 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 uh, the nation. Okay, Naomi, you mentioned moral strategies, ethics of working. Yeah, how am I going to get people to engage in commerce? And how, what kind of laws and uh, legal structure am I going to have in place so that if I, even if I can protect myself from my enemies, if I don't have some kind of law and order internally uh, within my nation, then I'll never be able to get business generated and people won't be able to earn a living and feed themselves and we won't have you know, food and clothing and shelter and all the, the kinds of things that we would need. Okay, And yes, Naomi, local administration, uh, I'm going to have to, depending on how big the country is, maybe I'll have to divide it into smaller groups and have local administrators over those groups. I'm going to have to have, as you say, very good, good local governance. I'm going to have to have a strategy for how to organize this country and maintain law and order and discipline and not be so onerous that the people rebel against it, but enough so that we, you know, uh, deter people from crime and we make sure that if somebody engages in a contract with somebody else, it's enforceable. All the things that you would need to have to prevent a nation from collapsing. And we have seen, uh, I think, in fairly recent history, uh, that those nations that don't have stable governments, what happens is investors will not come there because they recognize that, gee, if I go take, I don't know, $30 million and build a plant to produce widgets, uh, rebels may come along and, and take control of the plant. Um, the government may confiscate the plant. Uh, organized crime might come along and confiscate the plant. So why, as a businessman or a woman, would I go invest $30 million in a place where it's not stable? Um, so there's got to be a plan or a strategy for how the nation will function internally and how it will protect itself from its enemies. Um, and Pat, yes, they would also need to know what kind of products they have that other nations might buy from them. They've got to have a strategy for how we're going to economically trade with other people uh, unless we just happen to have all the, the natural resources that we will ever need right in our own little country, which is pretty unusual. Uh, they're going to have to figure out how to trade with other countries because they're going to need some things that the other country has. And what kind of a strategy am I going to have for how to do that in a way that encourages commerce across the borders, but... Uh, doesn't put me at a disadvantage or doesn't put the country at a disadvantage. Lots of different things. So without careful planning, a nation will fall. Uh, and so you've got to have those kinds of strategies in place uh, in order uh, to make that happen. 
Okay. Any questions then on the first half? Interestingly enough, if you think of your own self as a nation, your own life, your family, whatever, uh, I would say that also you will have to have a strategy, a plan for how am I going to protect my family? How am I going to earn a living? How am I going to make sure that we have enough food, clothing, and shelter? Uh, and, and John, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, while the verse specifically is referring to nations, I don't see any reason why the same thing doesn't apply to a family. Uh, you can also say it applies to a business. Uh, and if I start a new business to build widgets and there's already a bunch of widget manufacturers out there, uh, then how will I present, prevent myself from being overrun by my competitors? How will I market myself? How will I attract people to my business? If I've just invented a widget and I'm the only widget manufacturer, how am I going to make sure that I preserve that? And how am I going to uh, provide good enough service that even if someone comes along and starts manufacturing low-grade widgets, that I'll be able to convince people that my widgets are better? Uh, and so forth. So yes, I think it applies to nations, I think it applies to families, I think it applies to businesses, um, and, uh, you know, to a degree, to individuals. Okay, so now let's look at the second half, which tells us, with many counselors, there is safety. So we know from the first half, okay, a nation without strategies is going to fall. Now the second half is saying, with many counselors, there will be safety or victory. So here's the question, why would that be true? How is it that many counselors would ensure safety or victory? Okay, Pat, good. The counselors would have to be moral and ethical men. Yes, they would truly have to be counselors. And a counselor would be someone who is going to share with you information that will be uh, important for you to know and in your best interest to know, even if it's uncomfortable for you to hear it. Um, and yes, Pamela, depends on the expertise of the counselors. If they are truly counselors, now if you're surrounded by a bunch of yes people and all they do is, is pander to you and try to make you feel like, you know, you're great, then they're not going to tell you true advice uh, that will be of benefit to you. They're just going to tell you what's going to make you feel good. But sometimes, you know, you may not need that. You may need, uh, you know, some tough love or harsh advice. Um, so each one would have to be an expert in their field, yes? Why would, you'll notice the verse does not say, with a counselor there is safety. It says, with many counselors there is safety. Why do you think the verse says many? What would be the advantage of having multiple counselors? Okay, Pat, good. More minds are better than one. Okay, any other thoughts on that one? Naomi, you've asked if it applies to the personal spiritual life of a person too. Let's hold that thought because rather than try to read further into the verse than is written, let's go with just what the verse is telling us so far. And it's talking about counselors and safety. Uh, presumably in the context of a nation, which is what the first half is talking about. I think we'll get to the answer to your question. And let me pause, because... Okay. Alright, Pat, one person could take a nation into totalitarianism. Okay. Now let me hang on because it looks like you're writing something too.
Oh, John, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, for those on the tape, I believe it's, John wrote, I believe it's because the more viewpoints you see on an issue, the better the chance you will see the complete picture before making a decision. Okay? So imagine if you had um, one person giving their viewpoint. Okay, you'll get a viewpoint. But if you have multiple counselors, it is almost a certainty that they will bring multiple viewpoints to bear on the question. Now, when multiple viewpoints come up, there will potentially be some disagreements between those viewpoints. And that disagreement should engender some discussion and analysis and uh, look at pros and cons of various actions that could be taken in the situation and by putting those all out on the table the more viewpoints that are given within you know a reasonable number that you can manage then that gets enough issues out on the table that whoever is listening to those counselors will have the best chance of seeing the complete picture and all the possibilities before making a decision okay uh, John, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so, with many counselors, says there is safety. Uh, I think what that's saying is, uh, I don't think it always guarantees that if you ask, you know, five people, that means you'll come up with a decision that will be successful. But there is safety in asking multiple people because when you get that discussion of ideas and that, uh, looking at multiple viewpoints, you can see a broader picture than you might not otherwise see. And that can lead you to make a more holistic decision. My experience in business is that if I sit down to ponder a problem, uh, I may come up with one approach or one or two ideas. If I sit in a room with six other people and we look at that problem, uh, by the time we get done, we will have come out with a richer approach uh, than any one of us would have come up independently, uh, come up with independently, because we get the benefit of inputs from a lot of people. Okay, uh, Pamela, you've asked, is Solomon endorsing the Sanhedrin? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I can only go on what the, the verse is saying here. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, having a Sanhedrin with 70 very wise people uh, gave you a lot of different viewpoints uh, and gave an opportunity for a lot of discussion and analysis. Uh, but I don't know whether he's directly going, uh, going after that. So, interestingly, on this verse, um, the Vilna Gaon says that the best approach is to have one person making the decisions but many people advising it. Why would that be? Because as we've discussed, when you get many counselors, you get multiple viewpoints, and that allows uh, the person making the decision to see a full picture and, and make a, a more measured and informed decision. If you just had one counselor, you might not get all sides of the issue, uh, and you might not get a bias, or you might get a bias, and that could result um, in a mistake, but with multiple counselors, there's a high like, higher likelihood that everything will get out on the table. Interestingly enough, however, it says many counselors. It does not say many leaders, because at the end of the day, if you have many leaders, then you can end up with the leaders having a clash amongst themselves. So the ideal situation is having one person who has to make the ultimate decision, but that person is getting uh, advice and counsel from multiple counselors. And you'll see that in military situations. You know, you generally don't have five generals at the top all making the decision. There's one, and that general might be surrounded by a number of people who give him advice and their opinions, but at the end of the day, there is one person militarily who has to make the decision about are we going to fight and if we're going to fight, how are we going to fight, and so on and so forth. 
similarly with other uh, other kinds of, uh, of situations. Um, and some of you pointed out uh, that, that they have to be uh, folks who are experts in their field and true counselors. Um, again, if they're all heavily biased in a single direction, then they really aren't counselors. They're really not telling you what you need to hear, even if it's uncomfortable for you to hear it. So someone operating politically might not do that. But a real counselor will tell you what you need to hear, even if it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Okay, um, and again, the verse doesn't say that the nation will always be saved, uh, but what it does say is uh, that there is safety, that is the best course of action is for a leader uh, to have a multitude of counselors so he or she sees all sides of the issue and the consequences of all the various possible courses of action. Okay. Any question on this verse? Okay. Let's move on to chapter 11, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15. And the verse reads, He who gives surety for a stranger will be broken by it, but he who hates handshakes for surety will be secure. He who gives surety for a stranger will be broken by it, but he who hates handshakes will be secure. So, what questions might we ask around this? He who gives surety for a stranger will be broken by it, but he who hates handshakes will be secure. What questions should we be asking? Okay, Naomi, I think you're asking what will he be co-signing and uh, and why does that matter? And Pat, you've asked a good question. Why would someone want to give surety for a stranger? Uh, okay, and good, John. What's stranger versus co-signing period? Okay, and how will he be broken? Good, Naomi. How will the, the person who gives surety for a stranger be broken by it? Um, why co-signing for a stranger versus co-signing in general? That's a very interesting point. That's a very interesting point. And we'll touch on that. Because, you're right, the, the verse is specifically getting at co-signing for a stranger, at least in the first half. Uh, and why not just avoid co-signing altogether? Okay, good. So, in case it's not clear, surety is where you take responsibility for something that someone else is supposed to do, particularly with regard to paying a debt. So somebody comes along and says, hey, will you co-sign this loan for me? And you say yes. And if you don't know the person, you are giving surety to a stranger. So if someone does do that, why do you think they would be broken by it? Okay, and Pat, you've asked how much. The verse doesn't tell us. We're, it's just telling us that the person did, in fact, guarantee a loan for a stranger. Uh, Naomi, you wrote, uh, co-signing is with the stranger or with... Uh, or with someone for the stranger. Co-signing in this case is with the stranger. So it's someone you don't know and you're agreeing to co-sign alone. Uh, 
I suppose an example might be um, your friend comes along and says, hey, uh, my cousin Sam just moved into town. He's trying to buy a house. Would you co-sign the loan for him? Now, you don't know Sam, uh, so you're asked to co-sign a loan. Yeah, Pat, you're absolutely right. The person co-signing can wind up having to pay the debt himself. Uh, and John, absolutely, it seems very foolish to get tied at the hip with someone you don't know. At, that's right. Um, I mean, if he provides surety for a stranger, there would seem to be a high probability that he will end up having to pay the loan. Um, first of all, the stranger doesn't know him, so there's no psychological uh, uh, tie for the stranger not to just run off and take off with the money or whatever was borrowed. I mean, I have no guarantee uh, from the stranger that he won't do that. I don't know the stranger. I don't know what his reputation is. And secondly, why would a stranger seek money from someone he doesn't know? I mean, you would think he would have friends he could go to who know him and know whether he's trustworthy. So that suggests the possibility eh, this guy's not, you know, a good credit risk. I mean, if you put it in today's terms, imagine walking into a bank and asking for a loan without anybody knowing you and without showing any identification. I mean, no bank would do that. So the person in the first half of the verse is, seems like is highly probable that he will lose his money. And if he keeps doing this, if he keeps giving surety for strangers, uh, or if he risks enough on the first stranger, he will eventually be financially broken because the odds seem to be stacked against him uh, that, uh, uh, that he's going to lose his money. Okay? So that's what the first half seems to be saying. The second half is rather interesting because there are some different ways we can interpret it. Uh, and I'm going to suggest two possible interpretations. It says, he who hates handshakes will be secure. Now, the handshake, at least in one uh, translation, they put in brackets, for surety. In other words, someone who's, who's uh, guaranteeing someone for, for surety on a handshake. The first, the first way we can interpret it is that handshakes for surety, or handshakes, means and this goes back to your point, John, that he won't guarantee a loan for anyone. I mean, one of the ways that he guards his wealth is by not offering to guarantee loans for other people. Uh, that way, he doesn't risk his wealth if the other person defaults. So he keeps his wealth secure by simply not being a guarantor for anybody else. So, in this interpretation, the first half of the verse is telling us the consequences of providing surety for a stranger, which is financial ruin. And the second half is telling us that the way to avoid this type of financial ruin is not to be surety for anyone. Okay? And so in this interpretation, the word handshake means providing surety for anyone. Okay? And if we take that interpretation, the subject of the verse would seem to be the consequences of providing surety. Okay? And on the one hand, if you do it for a stranger, your consequence will be financial ruin, uh, and the way to secure your money is to not provide surety for anyone. So that's one interpretation. I'd like to suggest a second one. Uh, and, and I can raise some some question uh, about the first half, of, uh, first interpretation that can lead us to a second interpretation. And here's, here's the problem. If the first half is teaching us not to act as surety for a stranger, and the second half seems to say that the way to be secure is to not act as surety for anyone, so what is King Solomon telling me? Is he telling me don't act as surety for a stranger? Or is he telling me don't act as surety for anyone? The first half of the verse is very clear. 
So that suggests a possible different interpretation of the second half. And a further, I guess, confirming piece of evidence for that would be, why is it that King Solomon uses the word handshake in the second half, but he doesn't use it in the first half? Could be that he was just using that as a, uh, a way to talk about giving surety, but it could be that he meant something else. And here's what I'd like to suggest. King Solomon could be saying that there's a difference between a handshake and a formal loan document. Think about when you establish a loan. Which is more clear and precise? Setting things up with a handshake, which implies that all the loan arrangements are verbal, or establishing them with a document. I'd suggest that there would seem to be a great danger in establishing an agreement to guarantee a loan simply through a handshake. Because if there is no written documentation of the loan, even for some, with somebody I know, then there is a real possibility that the two people walking away will remember things differently. I mean, this happens all the time. Think about times you've been in a conversation with someone and you thought everything was clear, and a week or a month later you revisited some consequence of that conversation and found out that the other person remembered the conversation very differently. Okay? There is an interesting thing uh, one of my colleagues refers to called the interpersonal gap. And it's worth discussing here for a minute. When you say something over to someone, you have a particular uh, intent on what you're trying to say. And you speak words out of your mouth, and they go over to that other person. But between you and the other person, there is a filter. And that filter is a combination of all your life experiences, your personality, your upbringing, uh, psychological issues, and all kinds of things. It's a filter through which each of us hears things and sends things out. So you speak some words out of your mouth over to your friend who is sitting there, you know, 10 feet away. Now, your friend also has a filter between you and him that reflects his personality, his upbringing, his fears, all the things that go together to make him. Uh, maybe the way he was raised around certain inflection and so forth of words, whatever it might be. And those words that you speak have a particular impact. Now, you thought you were saying one thing, but by the time they get through your filter and out and then through his filter and into him, they have an impact which may be significantly different than what you intended. He then turns around and responds to you, and those words go out through his filter, go across the room through your filter and land in you, and they have a particular impact that may be very different than what the intent was of what he was saying. And you keep conversing back and forth and back and forth, and given all the factors that go into communication and all the things that have affected our lives, it's kind of amazing sometimes that we can communicate with each other at all, and at least have our meaning come across. And this is how misunderstandings develop. Someone will say, you know, I'll meet you there at noon. Well, to them, noon means precisely at noon. The other person about noon means somewhere between about 11.30 and 12.30. And the person is very precise, goes, and the other person isn't there, and then they have all kinds of difficulties because of that. So in establishing a loan, one person could hear it very differently than the other. And if they simply shake on that and they both walk away, and there's no witness or objective documentation of the loan, there could be huge probability of misunderstanding uh, that comes about along the way. 
So when it comes to establishing yourself as a guarantor for a loan, you want to make sure that all the details are crystal clear. Uh, and that way you avoid any difficulties in the future. There aren't any ambiguities. Uh, we've got everything down in a, in a clear loan document. So if I'm going to be a guarantor for someone, and maybe there's a good reason that I might be a guarantor, say, for my brother-in-law, who I know very well, who's starting up a new business, and he's agreed that I will get, you know, 10% of the profits in exchange for guaranteeing his loan, I might look at that and say, yes, that's a very good business decision, and I'll put that down in writing, and, you know, uh, that's all very fine. But if all we have is a handshake, then he might say, well, yeah, it's 10% of profits, but only after we get ourselves established, or something like that, and we may end up in great difficulty. So in this interpretation, the first half of the verse is telling us not to act as surety for a stranger at all. The second half of the verse is telling us that if we're going to act as surety for someone, and it would have to be someone we know because we ruled out acting as surety for a stranger in the first half, then we should not do it on the basis of a handshake because that leaves open the possibility that the other person will remember the situation differently. Rather, we should carefully document all the terms of the guarantee in writing so there's no room for interpretation later. So in this second interpretation, the subject of the verse would seem to be how to stay safe when acting as surety for a loan, as opposed to the first interpretation, um, which was the consequences of providing surety. Okay, let me pause and ask, are there any questions on this verse? Okay, Pat, yep, you've made some good comments there about the stranger, person not on the up and up. Um, not somebody that you know well. Very good. Any other comments or questions on that? Okay. Um, in that case, I want to just um, wrap up real quick. We don't have time to tackle uh, another full verse but I would like to raise one point about a question that Naomi raised, and thank you, Naomi, for raising it. Um, she was down in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5, uh, which reads, Evil people don't understand justice, and he who searches for God understands everything. Uh, and I'd just like to give you a quick uh, summary of that. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, when I... Uh, in uh, uh, some uh, notes that I had uh, said that Rashi defines justice with regard to this verse in accordance with Proverbs. That is, it's about understanding the consequences uh, of your actions. Because if you did understand the consequences of your actions, you would act in accordance with justice. Uh, for example, if a person saw that his actions were going to cause suffering to his children or his grandchildren or his great-grandchildren, if he really could see that and it was real to him, he would act on it and, uh, and change his actions. So evil people don't place their thoughts on the future consequences of their actions, or evil people who don't, rather, place their thoughts on the future consequences of their actions don't understand justice. Because if they thought about the future consequences of their actions, they would see what they're doing and they would return from their, their evil ways. Now, the second half says, He who searches for God understands everything, which sounds pretty phenomenal. Uh, just, you know, if, if we read it out of context. Um, but what Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested um, is that uh, he understands everything insofar as the subject of Musser is concerned, insofar as the subject of character development. So Rabbi Moskowitz assumes that 
that in the verse he's still talking about the same subject. Not everything like nuclear physics and radar and oceanography and you know all kinds of things like that. But he who searches for God understands uh, everything. And it's my understanding that he who truly and sincerely searches for Hashem will see the truth of reality. And by doing so, he'll begin to understand the idea of consequences. And he'll understand how things work, how people operate, and so forth. The kinds of things that we're talking about in our study of Proverbs. This is not a magic thing. Okay? Uh, this is not where, okay, if I'm searching for God, suddenly, boom, I'll get this you know, big revelation. It's, a, it's a, an evolution, if you will. It's a development uh, where the, the search for God is really about the search for truth, and that leads to understanding. And interestingly, uh, one of the things I shared with Naomi is you'll note that King Solomon in this verse uses the word searches. He who searches for God understands everything. The verse does not say, you know, he who wants to know God understands everything, or he who feels very religious understands everything. Uh, but he says, he who searches, and I'll suggest to you that the word searches is an active verb. It implies the person is actively looking, he's hunting, he's trying to find it. And the activity uh, of, of actively looking is about learning and grappling uh, with understanding and the ideas. It's about increasing a person's knowledge and wisdom, which doesn't come about any other way that I know of other than study and perseverance. Uh, and that's what we're doing here in, in our entire study of the book of Proverbs. Little by little, one step at a time, we start to see the ideas and we see deeper and deeper uh, levels of understanding and so eventually, he who searches for God understands everything. In other words, understands completely how consequences work uh, and uh, how people interact with the laws of nature and uh, why it makes more sense to operate uh, in accordance with uh, Torah than not, the difference between good and evil and the righteous and the wicked, uh, and so forth. So, okay. Uh, any questions on that? And Pat, let me go back to your point in your notes on 1114. It says, just as a city must use every possible means to overcome attacks, so to a person must, must devise plans and seek advice in his war against sin. Oh, thank you for bringing that up, because I wanted to, uh, uh, to, to clarify, does that apply on an individual basis? And I think Naomi had asked about whether that applies, um, to one's spiritual life. Um, yes, I, I mean, I think the analogy is very, is very true. In the same way that a city has to protect itself, so too uh, each of us needs to devise plans uh, and seek advice uh, against uh, the war we're having with our own emotions, with our, uh, our inclination towards sin, our inclination towards seeing life incorrectly. Uh, and so the study of the book of Proverbs gives us the ammunition uh, that we need by seeing ideas clearly and knowing how to argue uh, back and forth uh, with them to be able to establish that. But yes, you absolutely do need to have plans and strategies to uh, protect yourself in the same way that a nation uh, will need to do so. Um, and yes, Naomi, I do think that it applies to uh, the personal spiritual life of a person too. And so a person for their own life, not only physically, but in terms of, of uh, their own soul, needs to have strategies, uh, and uh, it helps to have multiple counselors. Uh, and they have to really, truly be counselors, which is why it's great if you have the opportunity to build relationships with trustworthy rabbinic scholars uh, to be able to go to them and say, hey, here's a challenge that I'm having, what would you recommend? And get multiple viewpoints and figure out, okay, what's the best way that I can undertake a strategy to take care of that particular problem? Um, and yes, Naomi, you're quite right. A person can easily be led by loose ideas about Torah 
by someone who doesn't know Torah. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who think they know more than they know. Um, and so you have to pick, and, and that's true in virtually any field, uh, you have to pick your counselors very, very carefully uh, and make sure that you're working with people who have a knowledge of the particular area. Um, you know, if I needed advice on how to do marketing in a, in a business, you know, I would very carefully look around and say, okay, who are the people who are the experts in this area who really know what they're talking about, not just somebody, you know, who has an idea or two or has, you know, hung out their shingle and has started a business consulting on that, but someone that really has a depth of knowledge that I can turn to who can help me. And hopefully I would get multiple people involved in that process um, so that I can get a bunch of different ideas and then sift through that and figure out what's going to work best for me. So, very good points. Any other questions on any of these? Okay, then we'll stop for the evening.